The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa, and welcome to Business is Boring. Venture capital is one of the most interesting and exciting parts of business, but it's also one that's wildly high risk and closed off to most investors. Currently, most VC funds require people to be wholesale investors to get involved, which basically requires you to be very well off or very experienced in the venture investing space. And many funds have advertised minimum investments of 50000 to many hundreds of thousands of dollars. One local deep tech fund is out to change the face of investing by allowing normal retail investors, the kind of people who have a sharesies account, to be able to invest with a minimum of 1000 While it is still high risk, and many people recommend not having more than 5-10% to of your investments in such asset classes, it is a super interesting approach to mean more people who are into the space can now choose to back the portfolio of deep tech companies Matu invests in. A driver of this work has been Dr Andrew Chen, a venture partner at Matu, and he joins us now to talk accessibility, the kind of things they invest in, and how they make their decisions. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Andrew Jin. Tenankoe. Hey, so tell me about your path into um, communication and um, being in the world of like ideas and commercialization of science and uh, all this cool stuff. What got you interested in the space? When I was in high school, like I got really into robotics. Um, that was probably my main introduction into the world of science and technology and I was always around computers. Um, when I finished high school, my plan was to become a like robotics engineer and I was going to go do a mechatronics degree. Um, and so I went to University of Auckland. Um, I studied computer engineering uh, and commerce as well. Um, and through that journey, kind of started learning about startups and kind of going, oh, yeah, these are really cool businesses that are taking ideas that are going like, to fundamentally change the way that we do things and um, have a real impact on the world. Um, and the dream was to like go start a, do, go do a startup, right? Either start my own or like join somebody else's. Um, and right when I was like finishing my undergraduate degree, that was um, when the like most recent wave of artificial intelligence kind of started kicking off again. Um, and we didn't do very much AI stuff like as part of the engineering course, and I wanted to learn more about it. Uh, so I ended up going and doing a PhD um, in that area, and. Uh, that that kind of is all part of this journey of just like learning more about technology and how it works and like more than just the technical side of how it works, but the commercial side of how that thing gets translated into things that we all get to use on a day-to-day basis. Were there many, is it a common um, conjoint degree to be doing commerce and engineering and computer science? Uh, I think if you are doing a conjoint out of engineering, it's probably the most common one to do with commerce. Um, and it kind of does make sense in that 
a lot of engineers do end up being like managers um, and they need to understand how to read accounts and do planning and that sort of thing. So um, having some financial skills there is probably useful. And so had you always been interested in the business side to be picking that up? Yeah, like I don't know how conscious it was, um, but my dad was an entrepreneur um, in Taiwan um, before you know he moved to New Zealand, and um, I, I, I imagine that he probably fostered some entrepreneurial spirit in me as a child that I didn't even realize was happening. Um, and so, yeah, going through that sort of commerce degree, like it was definitely a second degree for me. Like engineering was who I am, like that's what I want to do. Um, but it was really helpful to just have those other skills in my back pocket. And after having, you know, this interest in robotics and doing, you know, an engineering degree, and that's pretty, you know, pretty hard. And like, you know, megatronics sounds pretty cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what what led you to like, and doing a PhD is no kind of small task to bite off, right? Yeah. So, so AI must have really caught your interest. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, like 2014, 2015, like there are these new deep learning models coming out, this new AI stuff that's coming out, and um, there was this interest in learning more about it, but um, you kind of had to learn about it yourself. Like there weren't that many places where you could go and be taught it. Um, And so a PhD is a really good way to kind of have that time allocated to really get deep into something without having to worry too much about all the other pressures of having a job um, and like working for somebody and trying to like build a sustainable business. Um, and it helps if you have a scholarship, to be honest. Um, so, uh, yeah, like that bought me essentially like three and a half years of like really deeply going into this space and just understanding it a lot more. And what did you do the PhD in? So it was a kind of interesting if people can think AI, but you were bringing in a lot of kind of questions of ethics and what happens in the real world and how humans will interact with it in future states and stuff, hey? Yeah, when I started, it was very much like I want to be a geeky engineer and I want to do cool AI stuff. Um, and so I was working in computer vision, which is like processing of images um, and in particular processing of surveillance camera footage. Um, and when I started, I was like, yeah, this is cool. We can use technology to make it so that you don't need to have a security guard sitting there watching you know, 20 TV monitors. You can use computers to help make that job a lot easier. Um, and during that journey, I was a bit more like, hold on a minute, what am I like really doing here? What am I enabling in terms of surveillance? Um, And that was when I started learning a lot more about privacy and ethics and kind of going, hold on, we're we're not talking about this stuff as engineers because we are just building the cool thing because we can. Um, And actually there's all these other broader considerations that we need to think about. Um, So yeah, I ended up writing about privacy and ethics and also like I think in a lot of the privacy stuff that happens it's you know how do we use regulation to like stop the bad things from happening um and so i was trying to really push from that perspective of like if you really deeply understand how the technology works are there technical ways to try and help make these systems safer and that kind of interest you know is only becoming more and more relevant to the world right and you you know in the in the intervening time you know, states have um, really lifted up and used uh, surveillance technology in, in a lot of the ways that people would have had as their kind of worst-case scenario. <laughs> yeah. So that, that must have been an interesting thing to observe. Yeah, absolutely. Like I kind of often think about like science fiction, let's try to keep it as fiction. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it is 
we don't want that to serve as an inspiration for how we can do things um, because we'll end up doing it poorly. Um, yeah, I think um, there's definitely been a lot more interest in these sorts of spaces. Um, there's a lot more international collaboration on it as well. Um, but at the same time, like I, I don't want us to lose the New Zealand way of doing it. Um, we have a particular culture and just because something might work in the US doesn't mean that we have to like copy paste that. We need to make sure that it works for our people here in Aotearoa. And that interest in, you know, the social impact of this technology and in, you know, our, our own backyard. Uh, a lot of people listening would have heard and seen and read you as that intersection of technology, regulation, and uh, privacy, ethics, data, um, meant that you ended up commenting a lot about the ideas around the COVID app, the technological challenges, the data challenges, the privacy challenges. Tell me about that kind of process. Yeah, so at the time, uh, this is like early 2020, um, I'd become a research fellow with COITU, the Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland, and it's sort of this multidisciplinary think tank, um, a, you know, eclectic group of people who are all kind of working on really interesting things. March 2020, pandemic really starts to hit in New Zealand. And like a lot of other people, I think I was just like, well, how can I use whatever skills and knowledge I have to try and help, right? A lot of people had really good intentions to just try and help at that point in time, um, especially when we you know, got into lockdown and it was like, okay, this is really real. Um, and, you know, I'm not a nurse or a doctor. I can't really do the health medical stuff, but maybe there's something in my technical background that could be helpful. Um, and, you know, with digital contact tracing, um, if you want to be uncharitable, like you can call it surveillance. Um, so there was a lot of similarities to what I was doing in my PhD. Um, and, and, and I'd done a lot of the thinking about privacy and just how difficult a problem it was. And like early on in the pandemic, a lot of the communication was just trying to tell people like, this is not as easy as some people are making it out to be. Um, a lot of people were just like, oh, the technology is here to use Bluetooth. And if we just give everybody Bluetooth, then magically the pandemic will end. <laughs> yeah, my nephew will do it in a weekend. And you're yeah. like, oh, we've got to think about some stuff. <laughs> yeah, like there was literally a guy who came to me and was like, I built an app last night. And I'm like, mm, yeah, you're not the government. And like there are a lot of other things that the government has to think about um, that you didn't have to. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of became a lot more interested in this thing that was new for everyone. Like um, before the pandemic there was very little work done on digital contact tracing. Like there were a total of six studies or something like that, and they were all in hospitals, um, nothing like at a national level. Uh, and so um, in terms of why I kind of ended up going down that path, it was really from a place of wanting to help and saying, um, you know, if I can do a little bit to try and help people understand what's happening with this technology, and also if I can like help hold the government to account and say like this is, you know, the, these things that we're doing are not so good and maybe we should do it in this way, um, then hopefully, you know, I can help us navigate through the pandemic a little bit better. Um, and, and so that, that ended up being, you know, two and a half years of uh, doing a lot of media work that uh, I was not really trained for. Um, I was supposed to do media training in May of 2020, which got cancelled, um, and I ended up just having baptism by fire instead. Um, <laughs> cancelled due to the pandemic, and then yeah. there's a whole lot of pandemic media. <laughs> yeah, and I did like 100 interviews in that first year. Um, and it was a really interesting experience to like learn all of that on the fly. Um, but uh 
yeah, I mean, overall, like I feel like if what I've been able to do has helped people understand the technology better um, and most importantly, like feel more confident that we were kind of on top of things mm-hmm. um, and, and just have that morale and be less depressed about the pandemic, then um, hopefully I've been able to do that. Yeah, as someone who's worked in technology, uh, I love the way that you were able to help give people some context for like, it's not it's not that easy and there's a lot of things to think about. And sometimes things do cost a bit if you're trying to make something that's robust enough for 5 million people and if anything goes wrong, it's going to be a national scandal. <laughs> yeah, and for like government IT, they did extremely well to stand up everything in such a short period of time and like yeah a few things didn't work here and there but by and large it worked you know (laughs) and yeah giving that fair-minded context you know like calling out the things that could be better and um yeah which is really and 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 tell me about the common thread there and how that um has helped lead you to the work you're doing with matu now like is it kind of that idea of that like excitement around um well, maybe like the commercialization of science, because that's another area, hey, where you've been really involved before, Matu, which is, um, t- tell us what that does, the return on, on, on science. Yeah, so return on science is a program that's uh, run by Auckland Uni Services, which is the commercial arm of the University of Auckland. Um, and essentially what we do is that there are staff and student-led projects coming out of the university. Um, some, some of them are, you know, a couple of students wanting to create their own business. Other things are, you know, staff member has run this experiment and made an awesome discovery and they're trying to figure out how to commercialise it. Um, and so the return on science committees have... Um, a combination of technical and commercial experts and we will meet every month and hear these ideas and try to give some support um, and most importantly it is that financial support to be able to give them you know the first let's say a couple hundred thousand dollars to like get off the ground um, really test out if there is something here before they go seek private investment um, but more importantly I think is the like advice that we can give them around the journey and you know what to expect what are all of these things that they may have never thought of before that will become important when running a business Um, and what are all of these words and jargon that are going to be used in the industry that um, they need to become familiar with so it is really a support mechanism um, and I started doing that when I was doing my PhD I was recruited as a like technical expert at the time um, and that was kind of what then led me on this journey with Matu. And it's a really cool story, right? Like the the support that these things like uni services and, you know, lots of the universities and teaching institutions and research institutions in New Zealand have their own kind of version of that, hey. Um, they, and, and there's kind of umbrella organisations on top of that, that again. Yeah. But it's such a cool thing where people have gone from these environments of pure research and study and, you know, I really encouraged just, like, chase the idea and don't worry about the commercials, right? And then you hit this point where you're like, oh, we found something. And it's quite a big change in thinking and approach and, and all the rest, hey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find it interesting that um, there's this tension sometimes around, like, university academics. They've been in a lab their whole life. Um, how can they come out and become a CEO and, like, run a business? Um, and I've had lots of arguments with people about this because they're like, oh, you know, we, we, need, to, we need to bring in a real business person to come and run this company. Um, and my opinion is that, like, if you're going to be an academic and you're going to be, like, at the top of your field for, like, 10 years, 20 years, you're probably pretty smart uh, and you probably know how to learn. Um, and just because you've never run a business before doesn't mean that 
you can't learn how to do that. Mm. Um, and so our philosophy really is to like help guide people and to say, look, there's going to be a lot of stuff that you don't know and that's okay. Um, and you don't know what you don't know, right? So let's try to help you along that journey. We can give you some tips. We can point you in the right direction um, and, and see if you can kind of learn. Um, and we all kind of agree like, okay, you're going to have – a year, two years, three years to try and like find out if this is for you. And if you don't want to be the CEO at the end of that, that's to- that's also totally fine. There's no shame in that, right? Um, and you can continue to be the chief technical officer or the chief scientific officer, and we'll bring somebody else in at that point. Um, but I really want to kind of dispel this myth that like academics don't make for good business people because I think we have lots of examples of academics or researchers who have gone on to become really, really good CEOs. Yeah, and like you say, like learning is obviously the – the main skill to whether people are going to be able to grow uh, companies and themselves. But also like the things that academics often do. I did a project with the Insights Company and um, Professor Greg O'Grady and, uh, you know, a number of other people in there who have become part of lots of successful companies and spin-outs from um, university research. And they were amazing communicators because they've been teaching and synthesizing information for their whole lives, Um, you know, incredible learners um, and, and, and just so on to it. Yeah, um, Greg O'Grady is just amazing. Um, so he's the CEO of Elementary, which is one of our portfolio companies. Um, and like when we were doing all of the pitches and due diligence and that sort of thing, just his ability to pull out the smallest detail about the most obscure part of the business and, and say it with calmness and precision uh, was just amazing to watch. Yeah, it's a real school. And um and, and so yeah, you mentioned there that that's taken you to um Matu. How did that how did that happen? Yeah, um when I was finishing my PhD, it was just at the same time that this new fund was being established. And my career pathway was essentially to go become a software developer or an AI engineer or some combination of those words. Um but what happens when you finish your PhD is that you like write your thesis and it's a lot of words and you turn it into a book and you like hand the book in and then there's like six to nine months of waiting um, for it to actually be read by someone hopefully and examined Uh, and a lot of people just go and get jobs during that time and that's all good Um, and for me I was kind of like well here's an opportunity for me to try something different because if I'm going to do something different now is the time otherwise I'm going to go into a career of software Um, and so I met Greg Sitters, who are starting this fund, Matu, uh, and I said to him, do you need an analyst? Do you need someone junior to help do some of the work? Um, and so I originally signed up for a six-month contract just to give it a go. And then four, four-ish years later, I'm still here. And we'll be back in a moment with Andrew Jen to hear what they do at Matu, who they invest in, and their mission to democratise access to venture capital. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. 
Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. And we're back with Business is Boring, speaking to Dr. Andrew Chen of Matu. So, yeah, we've mentioned it a bit. What does Matu do? And, um, yeah, what, what, what's the kind of point of difference for it in the world of venture capital? Yeah, Matu does early stage science and technology commercialization. And so uh, our sweet spot really is um, when there's an idea that's just coming out of a research institution, mostly universities, but also our Crown Research Institutes and sometimes from the private sector. Um, and, you know, at that point, there is this idea that might have done a little bit of proof to kind of prove that um, there is something here, uh, but they're probably pre-revenue, um, pre-market, um, and there's still a long way to go. Um, and so we'll be there to really guide people on that journey of, you know, how do you set up a business? How do you do all of these things that maybe you haven't had to think about, like having accounting or insurance or, um, you know, negotiating legal contracts and that sort of thing? Um, and then also providing some of that startup capital uh, so that these companies can, you know, start to move out of that research environment and and start to you know withstand the pressures of being a business. And like, what does deep tech and deep science and you know research commercialization like? All of those terms can mean an enormously broad kind of area of things. Hey, absolutely. Uh, deep tech is this funny term because it used to be high tech, uh, and then like software started taking over high tech and people were like, oh, we need another word for this stuff that isn't software. So um, they went from being high, very tall to like being deep, very low. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really know exactly where the term came from, but uh, yeah, we, we talk about deep tech. Um, and the shortest definition that I have of deep tech is like clever people doing clever things. Um, if there's a sense that like, not anybody could do this um, and, you know, some academics been studying this for 10 years and to copy them, it's not just about throwing a bunch of money at it, but actually there is real clear expertise and um, knowledge that is needed to do it, um, then that to me is deep tech. Um, when we talk about sectors, like it's everything that you might see in a university from like medical stuff through to novel materials to energy um, to robotics and software as well. Um, AI is also in there. Um, you know, all of these things where there is a pretty significant barrier to somebody else copying them that could be you know, legal, it could be things like patents, but often is also just because you've got the two world experts um, in this field, like working in this area, um, that's all deep tech. And yeah, like when you say you've got the world experts, like New Zealand's a pretty small place in the scheme of the world. Uh, yes, you know, a number of our research um, institutions are really highly ranked in the world. And there's a lot of areas of, um, 
you know, it's like quite surprising things. Like, you know, lots of people might know that um, the wireless charging that you're now able to use through your Apple phones originated out of a New Zealand research um, program and then a New Zealand commercialised business, one of the first, like, great successes. But you wouldn't expect it, you know? You wouldn't expect this kind of globally relevant every person with a phone-in-their-pocket technology to come from here. Absolutely. Like, we have a lot of niches that um, don't get a lot of airtime uh, and they're not just like agritech, you know. A lot of people think that because we have a lot of primary industries that therefore we'll be really good at agricultural technology. Um, but we actually just have these like pockets of expertise um, and something that has really formed over the last maybe like 10 years is when we've like aggregated that expertise across the country. Um, so one group that I like am... Um, really a fan of is the McDiamond Institute and all the work that they've been able to do to bring all the materials and energy and like nanotechnology stuff together. Um, And that's just transformed uh, the way that researchers work from being like one researcher with their students in their lab to like much more collaborative work across the whole country. Yeah, there's some real success stories there. Hey, like Callahan and a lot of the work they do would be uh, familiar to people. But, you know, every sector's got their great story like that, like mm. Scion, who are doing all kinds of really cool stuff with, um, you, you know, supporting the, um, the, the the forestry and, and, and kind of primary wood products uh, to, to do things right at the front of things. Yeah, Scion's um, really, like, pushing the boundaries on what you can do with um, – forestry products um i kind of like that they actually don't just do trees um like the 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 whole focus is on trees but uh there's actually this opportunity that we were looking at recently that was seaweed and we were like oh why is scion doing stuff on seaweed and they said well we call seaweed the trees of the ocean (laughs) that's real cool and yeah moving past like just like thinking of forestry as pine (laughs) um yeah and, and and there is there there are these kind of centers of excellence right but like how do you um yeah, well, yeah, and what what do you do there? Like, so, so, so you are, you know, for people who uh, might might be kind of familiar with venture capital and the way it works, like, how do you um, identify an opportunity? Do the kind of work to work out if it might work or not, especially when it's leading edge science that might be super niche and there aren't kind of easy analogs to go to. Yeah, so we um, have a really thorough due diligence process. Um, If I go back a step, like firstly we go out and we try to find all of these great ideas and um, that's a combination of like looking at what's being funded through grants and also just like talking to researchers at lots of different, you know, research institutions um, and and just trying to find out what's happening that's interesting. Um, A lot of stuff that would like to be funded unfortunately isn't um, and that is in part because we just don't have enough money to be able to fund everything. Um, but also because like, we want to make sure that we're allocating our limited resources into the places where it will matter the most. Um, and so you know, we'll, we'll find this idea that we go, okay, yeah, there, there, there might be something here, um, and probably spend a couple of months after that really getting into the detail, doing the planning to go, this is the story of how it will become something that really fundamentally changes the world. Um, and... Like that assessment is a combination of the science and the technology, the markets, the intellectual property, um, and very importantly, the team, like the people who are going to be behind it. Um, but I would say like all of that is like 50% of it because there's just so much uncertainty and so much risk and so much unknown that 
the other 50% just kind of has to be gut feel. Um, and what makes the difference between like somebody who is doing this kind of as a hobby and, you know, an angel investor who is kind of just like dabbling in it here and there and somebody who's really like doing this as a professional career is just the number of opportunities that you see and the patterns that you start to see where you can kind of go, yeah, I feel like that this is a story that will work um, versus like only being able to deal with uh, the facts and kind of going, there's, there's parts of the story that are missing and I, and I just can't see it. And there's quite a broad spectrum of things that you can invest in and that you do invest in there. Hey, so tell us about some of the companies that maybe make that a bit real, um, you know, and, and what deep science and deep tech and, and, and commercialization all look like. Yeah, so we have a company called Roster Lab. Um, and if I start with sort of the problem, um, we know that there are huge staff shortages in the medical space. Um, doctors are overworked, nurses are overworked. And one of the key contributing factors of that is rostering, is deciding who is working at what times. Um, and it's a really, really complicated problem. Uh, there are lots of things to think about. So there's like health and safety stuff, there's union regulations, there's legal stuff. Um, and then there's like people who want to ask for annual leave and um, like training and all that sort of thing. Uh, and it's a complicated enough problem that in most places around the world, it's still done manually. So humans are doing that task. Um, and in many cases, they're actually like clinically trained people who are doing it. So rather than like being able to go be in the ward and look after people, they're spending a day a week or more just coming up with the rosters for their staff. Um, and in this like world of technology, we kind of go, surely there must be a better way of doing this. Um, but it turns out it is a really, really hard optimization problem. Um, and it just so happens that there was a PhD student at the University of Auckland in, in the Department of Engineering Science who has developed this algorithm, AI-based, that is world-leading. Um, there is actually an international nurse rostering competition, which kind of just serves to show how significant a problem it is. Um, and this was the like top algorithm in that competition, so beating out like lots of others around the world. And so what they're doing now is they're trying to commercialize that and turn it into something that will actually be used in rest homes and hospitals and other healthcare facilities to get, you know, better rosters that will actually deliver better care for um, patients. Um, and so that, that's the sort of thing that, like, really gets me excited because I'm going, yeah, this is a piece of software that, you know, it's not just... I don't want to be derogatory about it, but it's, like, it's not just an app, right? It's like something that is actually going to make the lives of people better. Yeah, and free up capacity of clinically trained people, which yeah. is part of the problem, right? Like yeah, if everyone's doing rosters, no wonder there's a, a shortage. Uh, that's really cool. And then so from things like that that are kind of probably really easy for everyone to clock, like what about some things that go kind of deeper into the science? Yeah, so another company that we've invested in is called Liquium. Uh, so they came out of Victoria University of Wellington, um, and they developed a novel catalyst for the um, manufacture of ammonia. And ammonia is this, like, chemical that um, is, is used in a lot of applications. You might think of it as being like a cleaning product, but it's a pretty significant component of uh, fertilizer um, and also potentially a significant component of um, green fuels going into the future. The big problem with ammonia is that uh, the main way of manufacturing it comes from the 1940s. It's called the Haber-Bosch method, um, and it requires very, very, very high temperatures and pressures. Um, and, and, and associated with that is a very high energy cost. So high that right now the production of ammonia 
uh, accounts for about two to three percent of global carbon emissions, Whoa. just just for ammonia. Because yeah, there's a lot of fertilizer used in the there's world. There's a lot of fertilizer, um, and so uh, what this company has produced is a catalyst that allows you to have that same reaction, but in much milder conditions. Um, so much lower temperatures and pressures, which means that the energy cost is a lot lower, um, and it's pretty significant if they can pull this off. Um, it's a very long play. Like It's probably going to be something between five and ten years before it can get to scale. Um, so they were doing sort of grams per day in the lab um, last year, and they want to get to sort of kilograms and then hundreds of kilograms, and then it's like tons per day and then hundreds of tons per day um, in order to like get this to a scale where it is meaningfully contributing to the global supplier of ammonia. Um, but in theory, if this technology can scale up to that level, then we could eliminate 2 to 3% of global carbon emissions. And to me, that's massive, right? Like, um, that's one of the key reasons why we supported this company. It's, it's yeah, like, there, there's financial return in producing a lot of ammonia for low energy. Um, but for me, it's like, we've got this capital that we want to deploy and climate change is like the existential problem for our planet, our society. Um, and we need to be directing resources towards solving those problems. And, and, you know, hopefully, logically, the carbon price is only going to be more priced into goods and services that are big emitters. So it's only going to become a better financial opportunity over time. You, you know, fingers crossed. We yes. all we all get our shit together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's um, yeah. That that's all, and that's so that's super exciting. And then that kind of world of VC, um, people may have pictures in their head of VC as being kind of, you know, angels are like I don't know, retired dentists or real rich and checking some money in and all the rest of it. And it might feel like or, or they're kind of you know company leaders that have had an exit and then they become you, you know in, involved in recirculating their capital and their um uh, their, their, their their experience. And you know, not to denigrate any d- dentists or anything, but you don't have to be an exited CEO or a um you know very successful later life um entrepreneur or anything to get involved right now. Like so t- tell us about how you're working to Break, break down those kind of um, barriers and make access to VC more accessible. Yeah, when I started at Matu, uh, we were you know, still doing capital raising for the fund um, and minimum investment is $100,000. And I saw that number and I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to participate in something like this. And I was looking around at all of my friends and like lots of young professionals like in good jobs earning decent incomes, but like just like, how are you going to have $100,000 to be able to put aside into something that like you won't be able to access that money for, you know, 10 years and like you, you're just completely locked out of this asset class. Um, and if you follow like portfolio theory that maybe you shouldn't put more than 10% of your like total investment into this sort of asset class. You need to have at least like a million dollars worth of investments before you can put a hundred thousand into a fund like this. And that's low. That's at the low end, right? Like um, we're a very small fund when it comes to venture capital funds. Um, There are others that have like minimum investment of a million dollars. And I was just like, that's totally like inaccessible to even like 99% of New Zealanders. Um, so it took us a while to find a way to like open the doors a little bit more to other people. Um, but we found a mechanism through the catalyst public markets, uh, where, um, anybody in New Zealand is allowed to invest. We have to 
you know, pass a whole bunch of regulatory, uh, regulatory tests and checks in order to be allowed to do that. Um, and it's cost us quite a bit of money to be able to offer this product. Um, but, you know, when we were putting this together, we, we really asked, like, what is the lowest minimum investment that we can offer here? And we managed to get it down to $1,000, which is still a lot of money. Like, I, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, I totally appreciate that not everybody has $1,000 spare that they can just put into something like this. Um, but I think it just opens it up to a lot more people who otherwise couldn't participate. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people in my generation who are kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to buy a house. Like the property market is not something that appeals to me. Um, and there are lots of like scientists and academics who are also kind of going, yeah, how do I invest in something that actually resonates with what I know and my world? Um, and having this option of investing in a deep tech venture capital fund um, is, is a kind of our way of helping people be part of that journey. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to turn someone's thousand dollars into like a million dollars and suddenly make them really rich overnight. Um, but I think it is about just bringing people along on that journey with us um, as we try to do what we can to, you know, build things for New Zealand. There have been both the, you know, minimum of 100K or minimum of 50K to get into these things, which is a problem, right? Like <laughs> in enough of itself, but also the regulations around this investment class, because it is high risk, locks your money up for a long time um, and very uncertain of outcome, <laughs> yeah. um, you, you know, by, by definition and by design. Um, there are very strict rules about who's allowed to invest. So you have to be what's called like a wholesale investor and that means you have to either have a lot of assets or a lot of domain knowledge and you have to have like a professional person, you know, you know vouch for you essentially for this to all work, um, one one of those conditions. And that's quite tricky. And, and so are you outside of that regime or how does that work? Uh, so we take all of those obligations really, really seriously. Like I think the Financial Markets um, Conduct Act is like a really important piece of legislation to help protect people. That's why it's there. It's not meant to be a, a, a thing that slows down innovation or slows down the financial sector. It's it's a thing to protect investors. Um, and there are very good reasons for it to exist because not everybody has good intentions, right? Like there are a lot of scam artists out there and lo a lot of people have lost money to those sorts of people. So we absolutely need those protections. Um, so Wholesale investors are people who like have enough money or have enough experience to be able to opt out of those protections, um, and you need a lot of money and a lot of experience to, to qualify. Um, what we are now offering is something for what we call retail investors, which is basically everybody else. Um, and in order to be able to do that, you have to um, produce documentation, you have to provide information to the market to tell people, like, this is what we're doing, this is how we do it, here are all of the risks, and you need to appreciate that there are risks. Um, and we do talk about investment in this area as being, like, put in money that you can afford to lose. Um, like, if you are saving up for a house deposit, don't put your house deposit money in here, like, not to give financial advice, of course, but, like, that's the level that we're talking about. Um, but as long as we are, like, giving people all of the material information that allows them to make a decision to invest, then we can offer this to retail investors. 
And it's a really hard thing to get the um, you know regulatory approval to do that because it's serious business, eh? And so that's why it's not very widespread at the moment. But you've done the work to do it and um, and and have that kind of a, a approval to offer it, and so are able to anyone who would you know put money into sharesies or would own shares themselves um, directly through a broker or or, or or some kind of platform they could be working with with you yeah in very real terms like the cost of allowing us to um, offer something to retail investors is like six months of work or more and like over a hundred thousand um, dollars just to be able to offer a product so um, you know you have to be doing it for the right reasons um, for us, it's not so much about raising a whole bunch of capital so that we can go and make more investments. It is about opening it up to more people. And just like for me, it's um, having that word of mouth effect of like if, if more people that um, know that we're doing this, then we're going to get more support for this type of investment you know, at, at, at other levels, like at government and, you know, in the higher echelons of society or whatever. Um, we, we just kind of want more people to feel like that they can be part of this journey. And it's kind of wild, hey, like um, uh, I, I was involved in a company called Vend that sold for $500 million. Its entire investment was about $50 million. And that's like 25 houses in, you know, like an average Auckland suburb. And for 25 houses, it created, you know, hundreds and hundreds of high-skilled jobs, um, you know, incredible kind of like, you know, technical abilities and experience and a whole bunch of wealth. And, you know, it's not it's not, not every story goes that way, right? But that, that, the, the levels of investment involved in this versus the levels of investment that we as a country do in property are just absolutely wild. And so anything that can help to kind of you know, like you say, you shouldn't be going out with more than maybe 10% of what you're doing into any of these classes. But if every big KiwiSaver and trust and, you know, um, if, if, if every big investor who could put 10% in, it could really change the, um, the job market, the financial profile, the, the, the economy here, right? Yeah. When we are making our first investments into one of these startups, the amount of money that goes in is like less than one house. Mm. Uh, and I kind of, you know, it's apple and oranges and people need somewhere to live. Absolutely. Like I'm not saying that we should all sell our houses and go do startups instead. Um, but like that's the quantum, right? And there's just so much potential that we could unlock if we supported more of these companies. Like we can't fund everything that we would like to fund right now. Um, and it's really hard to like say no to somebody for financial reasons because there's so everything else is already so difficult to achieve, right? Like to to find some bit of science or technology that is actually meaningful is a lot of hard work. Um, to get the right people and passion and spirit around that business is really you know serendipitous almost. Um, and to like put in the work into building a plan that everybody says, yeah, this could really become something. And then for it to just like not never happen because we couldn't get the money together. That's just like, that, that always just breaks my heart when we kind of have to say, sorry, we just like, we, we can't do this because we've got all of these other opportunities that we're investing in. Mm. Yeah. So getting more people into it is awesome. And as a kind of a final couple of thoughts, like what would your advice be for people who are interested in getting into this world? Yeah. Like I think, um, there are a lot of people who are interested in working in this space and, you know, the differentiating factor is like people who play to their strengths. Um, so like really understanding what it is that you know about and what your skills are 
will help you like understand and communicate to other people what value you can bring to you know a business or um, to a VC fund or to an investment or something like that. Um, and and yeah, just trying to find those ways to kind of like differentiate. And as a final thought, what will success be for you? Yeah, I, like I've thought about this a lot in terms of like what are the things that like drive me and I've kind of boiled it down to two things. So one is like I just like learning how things work and understanding how things work. That's kind of like the engineer in me um, and there's kind of like this technical side of that. But I am also now like really interested in like people and societies and politics and how we make decisions and, and I just kind of want to know how things work. And so um, being part of venture capital, you get to learn about all of these stories of like how are we going to make a difference in the world but there's also the meta of like how does finance work um and i'm still learning that um but you know i want to really get into that and understand how can we make that work for us rather than just like doing things the way that we've always done them right like we're investing in all of these innovative companies, yet we aren't that like innovative in our processes or our thinking about how we do things. So that's something that I like want to kind of shake up and doing things like Catalyst is a way of doing that, of just like changing how we think about investing. Um, the second thing that really drives me is impact and just like wanting to kind of make a difference in the world. And like I grew up with privilege, I totally acknowledge that. Um, but I feel like a lot of career talk is just like, how can you get a higher paying job? How can you move up in your organization? How can you accumulate more privilege and power? And I'm kind of just like, for what? Like, what is the point of doing that? Um, what is the point of accumulating more privilege and power if you're not going to use that to help make the world a better place? And there's a lot of ways to do that, like locally, globally. It's not, um, you know, a very clear cut thing. Um, but I kind of want to feel like that I'm part of all of these little journeys in our fund, uh, you know, part of these companies um, that are making a difference in the world, that are like saving people's lives or helping save the environment. Um, and, and if I can say, yeah, I had a little part in the beginning of that journey and getting it off the ground and making something successful that otherwise might not have existed, um, then I'll be pretty happy. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Hey, well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing that story. That's Dr. Andrew Jen, who is venture partner at Matu Group. Kia ora. Kia ora. So thank you to Andrew, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Samuel Robinson. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.